We are continuing our study of ethics of our fathers. We've just finished chapter one, and the chapter ends with Mishnah 18, but there is a postscript to the chapter. And this postscript is not technically part of Pirkei Avos, meaning it's not part of the original canon of the Mishnayot, of his teachings that were organized by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Uh, it was added later, and there is discussion in the commentary here that ratify this addition as being appropriate. Uh, so we'll discuss about, we'll discuss why uh, shortly. Uh, but really, this is a teaching that appears in Tractate Makos, and it's recited here at the end of Chapter One. But in truth, uh, it's also recited. I believe, I didn't check it, but I think it's at the end of every chapter, and most people are familiar with it because um, it's the famous teaching that is recited after a shi'or, right, meaning after a class, right before somebody stands up and says Kaddish. So it's Tanya, here it is after chapter three, after chapter two. So it, they, they put it in here at the end of each chapter of Ethics of Our Fathers as well, but it's not part of the original teachings of the Mishnayos, but we're going to study it because it's here. And in addition to that, it's good to know that this is the normal teaching that is recited before Kaddish. So uh, that is brought in the Shulchan Aruch, and specifically Orachayim, um, and Magen Avram and Mishnah Bura. They all say that because it's a Gadic material, it is appropriate to say it before Kaddish, and specifically the Kaddish of the rabbis. So since the rabbis are the scholars, and one of the earliest innovations of the scholars is the Mishnah, but also the Agada portion of the Mishnah or the Gemara, it's appropriate to say this before Kaddish of the rabbis, what we call Kaddish de Rabbanan, is recited. Um, now, it's interesting that the author of this Mishnah, his name is Rabbi Hananiah ben Akasha. We don't have other quotations from him. He is one of the later Tanaim. That means one of the last of the Tana level rabbis, which is just prior to the Mishnah, to the Gemara, pardon me, just prior to the Gemara, to the Talmud level rabbis. And he's only apparently quoted once in Tosefta, which is an addition to the Mishnah. Uh, in halachic matters in tractate Kali. Okay, so anyways, Rashi teaches that, like we said, that the, the rabbi's Kaddish is recited only after the Agadic study. The question is, why is that true? But it has something to do with the fact that it's an innovation uh, of the rabbis, so it, it kind of speaks to their quality as rabbis, and therefore Kaddish of the rabbis is said after that. Some people ask that avos itself, that means what we're studying itself, also seems to be Agadic. Agadic generally means more philosophic and um, kind of parable driven. Um, so ethics is also seemingly falling in that category. So certain people ask why it's necessary to include this teaching in Avos. If anyways, we could say Kaddish of the rabbis after any of the teachings of Avos. And so commentaries discuss it, but you know, it's not so clear why, why it's necessary. Um, uh, there's one commentary in the bottom from the Sfas Emes. He says that it's particularly appropriate after studying Avos because Avos is full of rebuke and criticism and it might be perceived as a very difficult burden to bear. 
And so these words of Rabbi Hanani ibn Akasha remind us that the Torah's weighty demands are really for our own benefit. So now let's read the teaching, and that'll become a little more clear. Rabbi Hanani ibn Akasha, Omer, Rasa Kodesh Baruch Zakos Es Yisrael. Hashem desired to give merit. That's the first explanation that we're going to learn. The word was Zakos from the word Zachut, or Zachus, which means a merit. And so Hashem wanted to benefit or give merit to the Jewish people. Therefore, he increased for them Torah and commandments, which is just interesting phraseology. It's both Torah and commandments. As it says, Hashem Hashem desired in order for his righteousness. That means Hashem desired for the benefit of the righteousness of his nation, not for his own righteousness, but for the righteousness of the Jewish people. Yagdil Torah v'yadir that the Torah be made great and glorious. So this is a very, really deep teaching. And I am going to confess to you that I personally feel like I have a lot left to be desired in my own understanding of it. Um, but we'll begin with some of the things that are spoken about here. Maybe we'll leave with certain questions. But the gist of this teaching seems to be that really Hashem could have given us a lesser Torah with less commandments. After all, 613 is quite the number. And then when you really actually break down the 613, many of them include many, 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 many activities or prohibitions, meaning things not to do or things yes to do. And so therefore, it's very, very numerous. And the premise seems to be HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have given us less. Why did Hashem give us so many? Because Hashem... <clears throat> wanted that the Jewish people will merit from all these, so to speak, and I'm saying so to speak, extra or additional commandments. That's the gist of the teaching. So now you can see it as a pretty innovative concept, and you can understand why this notion of the increasing of the Torah would be particularly appropriate to recite before the rabbi's cottage. Because one of the things that the rabbis are won't prone, uh, accustomed, or maybe even compelled to do is to share the wisdom of the Torah in ways that elucidate, you know, some of its profundity and make it more accessible and inspiring. And so, therefore, this teaching itself is very inspiring. That the idea for all the commandments is not, as you know, we like to say at home, the honey to do list. It's the honey to benefit list, right? It's the, the to-do list that's for our benefit, even though it might seem like it's for other reasons. So that would be like my simple way to explain this teaching. Now, philosophically, it's really difficult to conceive of the fact that the Torah could be different than what it is, because after all, the Torah is supposed to be somehow a divine uh, revelation of all truth of God's godly wisdom of infinity. So what does it mean that it could have been different is really, to me, a very hard question to answer. And I don't feel like I have a good answer to that question. And in the commentaries, we are going to see basic ideas about how it could have been different without really addressing that question. Okay, so that's kind of where I'm a little stuck, but so be it. So if you go to page 56 in the, in the book that we're using, um, the first 
commentary that they bring seems to be from the Me'iri. And the Me'iri is one of the early commentaries we call a Rishon. Um, and that uh, and that what he says is that an average person is drawn after physical instincts and desires. Only special people are able to sort of put those instincts and desires uh, to the side and assert control over them. But as a reward to our forefathers for their loyalty to Hashem, Hashem gave us specific means and methodologies that allow us to put the evil inclination to the side. So this is a beautiful way of saying, if you follow the system of the Torah, you will be less tempted towards evil, which is a, a beautiful idea. Uh, some examples you know, might be that even the discipline of getting out of bed every morning uh, to pray and to do the tefillin, et cetera, puts a person in the mindset of not just thinking about, hey, you know, is today a good day to go to the beach and do whatever else I want to do, right? It, it, it cultivates a whole different approach to living just from the very get-go, uh, or that we immediately acknowledge Hashem by saying, Hashem, I, I give thanks to you for returning my soul to me, right? These are things that we're not in necessarily right now in the throes of temptation, and we're already building a much healthier mindset by just following the prescription as the Torah outlines in various ways. Does that make sense so far? Am I, am I, am I being clear or not so clear? Okay. Um, now, another explanation, which is also from early commentaries, is that many of the Torah's laws demand things that people would naturally do. For example, most people are not into eating abominable creatures. Let's say mice, cockroaches. Okay? Most people are not into that. But the truth is, is that the Torah prohibits it, which means by not doing that, we get reward because we're following the commandment of the Torah. So this is an example where, in theory, the Torah could not have written those prohibitions. And again, I'm, I'm putting my, my entire philosophic problem with this Mishnah to the side. Um, in theory, the Torah could say nothing about, hey, don't eat cockroaches, and we would not get any reward for that. The fact that the Torah says, don't eat anything abominable, and also lists various types of creepy, crawly things that are prohibited, makes it a commandment for which we obtain reward. So that's an example. Okay, so that's an early commentary from the Rav and the Rivan. And they say that that's part of what it, the Rabbi Hanani ibn Akashia means, that Hashem gave us commandments of things that we wouldn't do anyways in order to benefit us by giving us reward for now observing those practices. Good? That's number two. Now, similarly, uh, by a later commentary, the Pharisee Israel, we have certain prohibitions which are self-evident, like you know, our founding fathers of this country said, right? Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? And an example of that is, let's say, murder and robbery. I know it's not so self-evident anymore. Um, that really, obviously, a society cannot function if those things are the norm. Nonetheless, Hashem commanded us about them so that he could reward us for keeping them. Okay, that's a later comment here. 
<clears throat> now, different, but also in a similar vein, Rabbeinu Yonah, who's an earlier commentary, he notes that many of the great moral, ethical, and spiritual principles that we have in Judaism are not just ideas, but they're actually given to us as commandments. So for example, man is instructed, choose good, right? In other words, it's not just that the Torah says, don't do these sins, do these commandments, let's say positive or whatever, do these positive actions. The Torah also says a general statement, stay away from evil, don't choose evil, choose good. So that becomes a commandment too. And so one would think that that's hey, it's sort of a logical spiritual principle. No, the Torah gives us a reward for doing it by saying, choose good. So in addition to, let's say, putting on tefillin every day, we're also choosing good. So that's another reward that we're getting, even for the same action. When we could have just left it as, well, that makes sense, and that's obvious. Nonetheless, the Torah gave us a mitzvah about that. Now, there's a beautiful explanation, which is a little hard to understand. And uh, they quoted here from Maimonides in his Mishnah commentary to Matos uh, on this teaching, uh, where this Hanani uh, ben Akasha principle is originally cited. And he says like this, there's a principle that we have in Judaism that in order for a person to merit life in the world to come, a person must fulfill at least one mitzvah properly. I'm not sure where that uh, principle comes from, but the Rambam writes about it. That means that a person can do lots of commandments, but not with 100% of the best intentions necessarily. He's not doing it altruistically. He might uh, side benefit from these things, right? He does it because of peer pressure. There could be lots of reasons why a person does good things or even avoids and does not do bad things. But what this principle says is that in order to really merit a share in the world to come, you have to do at least one thing completely correctly. And so Hashem gave us lots of opportunities of what that one thing could be in order that at least we should get one of them right in our lifetime. So that's a uh, beautiful idea. And again, that's from Maimonides Rambam in, in his Mishnah commentary to Matos. So those are different, again, ways to understand that the Torah would have been or would have looked different and Hashem increased the commandments obligation. And I guess we're saying also the Torah concepts around these obligations in order to give merit to the Jewish people, meaning ultimate future reward. There's a separate explanation, which learns a beautiful uh, definition of the word lizakos, which until now we've translated as to give merit, it also means purification. For example, when the Torah says pure olive oil, it says shaman, which means oil, zayas olive, zach, which means purify. So this word lizakos can also mean purification. So it's not that Hashem per se wanted to give merit, meaning credit and reward to the Jewish people. Hashem wanted to give them extra levels of purification. And so the ability to become ever more pure and spiritual is facilitated by this increase of mitzvos. And that's why Hashem gave us an abundance of Torah and mitzvos in order to totally purify all of man's physical and spiritual parts. This very much correlates to the idea that the 365 negative commandments correspond to the different sinews in a person's body. And the 248 
positive commandments correspond to the different limbs of a person's body. So through all these various commandments, every facet of the physical human being can become purified. And I guess you just uh, assume the corollary, all facets of the spiritual human being also uh, becomes more and more elevated. So that's the basic understanding of Rabbi Hananiah ben you know, it's funny. Um, yeah, that's the basic understanding of Rabbi Hananiah ben Akasha. And as we mentioned earlier, doesn't really belong per se here in Avos as part of the original thing that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi put together, but we put it here uh, because we're speaking of the greatness of the contribution of the rabbis. Now, one commentary says this is especially necessary because Pirkei Avos is full of rebuke and admonition. And I would say maybe a little bit differently is that it bolsters the idea that part of the increase of the Torah and the mitzvahs is the way the rabbis, i.e. the Jewish people, all can innovate important understandings based on the Torah and increase um, the Torah's reach. Right? Literally, we can say the Torah is elucidating this and is adding this point and that we wouldn't necessarily realize without the innovation and in thinking of the rabbis, but is somehow part of the expansiveness of the Torah. And so therefore it's very appropriate to put it in Avos because as we've discussed before, Avos ultimately speaks about every generation's leadership innovating what's necessary in order to preserve, maintain, and uphold all the principles of the Torah. So that's my explanation. Let me go to one commentary, but one uh, comment of Rabbi Nathiman from before that he posted on the chat, and then I take anybody else's comments and questions. We have a principle in the Talmud that says that the commandments are not given as pleasure. It's, it's a principle called mitzvahs lavli hanos nipti. Mitzvahs are not per se mediums by which man is supposed to extract pleasure. On the other hand, we now have Rabbi Hanani ibn Akash's teaching is that the increase of mitzvahs is to give man benefit. So how do we parse these two ideas? I believe that's Rabbi Nakhiman's question. Is that correct? Well, if you, it, it is, but then if you go one step further, it's not only pleasure, uh, Rashi, their uh, comments, enum elo ol olav, a yoke on the person. So that's a little bit taking not only pleasure per se, but any benefit per se. Yeah, so look, that's a big question. Um, and my suggestion uh, to answer that question for today is that everything does need to start as a sense of obligation. In other words, we can't start to do a mitzvah with the idea of, hey, this is really good for me. You know, like this, is, this gives me pleasure. Even though it's true that it really is good for a person, a person has a happier family and life, um, much more fulfilled, etc. when they follow the precepts of the Torah, the starting point has to be not that I do it because it's a benefit to me, I do it because it's what Hashem said. And it's only when we start with that mindset that we can then actually appropriately gain everything that is good for us. Uh, part of the reason for that is because when we're thinking about it from the selfish point of view of how it benefits me, we lose a tremendous amount in what it's actually doing because we're coming at it from a, an egotistic uh, mindset and we don't really submit ourselves to everything that the commandments are supposed to teach us and benefit us. Simple example, and it's one of the nice things about having 
a group like ours, we can have a little bit more of intimate conversation, is that for many guys, the idea of two weeks a month uh, that there is no physical intimacy, you know, when a woman is anida, the period itself, and then the, the time after that, you know, that it takes for the purification, most guys would say, that's really stinky. If the only reason a person does it is because, hey, at least when it's allowed, it like somehow is like more pleasurable, that's not going to yield the right mindset for the two weeks when it's not allowed. If we understand that every facet of, of it is actually really what Hashem required of us, and then we can begin to figure out why would it be that that's actually good for us, then we can get to, um, you know, really extract so much more than if we just said, well, okay, I guess I'll do it because it has this benefit. In the meantime, we resent so many other aspects of it. So we have to start with the mindset that everything is really a requirement and we're there to learn what it is that Hashem is requiring of us. I'm suggesting that as a possibility. Okay, any other questions or comments? Yes, uh, we have uh, Ethan and then Joseph in the room. Uh, thank you. So I, I actually, I was thinking about this and I think what um, what, what the rabbi just brought up as, as his commentary, I think there might actually be a tie-in with it. You know, it, if we take the mindset that Hashem views us as his children, right, as his creation, his children, you know, we as parents, we do the same thing with our kids. We, we will set them up ultimately for success. And those successes might be small things, especially when they're young and they're learning, right? An example would be, you know, my kids are, are eight and five. And the, the biggest pain in the tochas for a while was getting them ready in the morning. But if I gave them a benefit for them getting ready themselves, like it's a benefit to me because it takes a burden off of me and my wife. But it also made them feel good and independent. But that first time, and this, I think, uh, uh, ties into Rabbi Yechiel's uh, commentary, those first few times, their mindset of it was, this is a commandment from dad, right? This was an obligation from dad, and it was difficult. But now they've gotten used to it, and they see the benefits that they get from it, but that wasn't their initial place. And so I think maybe the, the connection there is, I, I think... Um, I think the commentary was from the Rambam or from, is that right? Or from, from Rashi? So, in regards so, to you. Yeah. Which, which commentary, the, the fact that yeah. it's not supposed to be for our benefit. It, and that it's a yoke or that it's a yoke. That, that It's a yoke. Uh, right. So that's a combination of the Talmud and, and Rashi. Yeah. Okay. If we take the mindset of, okay, this is not necessarily for our benefit. And that is how we enter the mitzvot. But yet we know, we know that following the mitzvot are ultimately, it, it is ultimately for our benefit. But it's the mindset, I think, that you go in in order to have that path and that personal growth to get to the other side where you feel and recognize the benefit. I don't know if that tied yeah, it all together. Yeah, I think that, that's echoing what we're talking about. I think that's yeah. a very good example. You know, in other words, the children are not necessarily going to be able to see all of the benefit without first doing it. Correct. Kind of what we will do and then come to understand and then, and then the other person, the other perspective that I was going to bring in, and maybe this is completely off, um, but you know, the, the idea that that the Torah could have been less, the commandments could have been less. I mean, we we, ha we actually have an example of it, and what's you know what what's required of, of of the goyim, the you know that 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 really they just have to follow the Noahide laws and and recognize God as as the only God, right? Like those, 
you, you follow that and that like that that could have been it for us right that could have been it i i guess my question to you rabbi is why couldn't that have been it or or why is that hard to count yeah, that's that's a very good point and a very good question my answer to that question is based on a principle of the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, and he says that God never intended to create the world with less than the maximum goodness possible. God and the nature of God being good always intended that the most good that could be attainable, uh, that man could uh, receive, is the purpose of the world. And so I therefore think that uh, a world that doesn't have Torah, as we have it, would not be a, sustain a sustainable world. Because the ultimate purpose is not to give man some good, which the Noahide laws definitely are, but to give man maximum good. That's the purpose, meaning the most access to godliness, relationship with him, however you want to define goodness. And so without that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't serve its purpose. I yeah. understand more uh, now why you struggle with the original. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay, I have to work on it. I'm sorry that I don't have a better understanding. Uh, Joseph, you had a yeah, point. Uh, for me, actually, this teaching is a bit of a paradigm shift and a cop-out. <laughs> that um, if to have all the 613 commandments, it's overwhelming and disheartening and can put you off. Uh, to, you know, say, I will never be able to achieve it in this, this heartbreak. But what you are teaching us that if you have only one commandment to do it properly, uh, it's like you have all of, all of that. This, uh, it's a foothold in all of them. It, it's a foothold. And yeah. it, it's, I feel it's a bit of a dilution uh, because you, you don't extend it's easier, I think it's easier to have one commandment done properly than to do all the six hundred and thirty. Some of them we are doing. And another question I have, and I, I, I kind of struggle with this, is that from all the commandments, if you just speak the truth, it's like you keep all the commandments. So truth, uh, speaking the truth about God, it's everything that's in God in compass. Is it keep speaking the truth and keeping true to the truth enough for this? This is my enough for what? Enough to, for the it, one commandment? Or I mean it would no, just include it's everything. Enough, it's to include enough everything. The equivalent of keeping the everything. everything. So Joseph is raising some uh, pretty complex points. Uh, uh, question number one is if it's true that uh, you know you can do one and merit uh, a share in the world to come, that certainly seems easier. I guess it kind of calls into question the compelling need to keep all of them. Um, even though the mission is advocating that as what's good for us, it still seems like it's, uh, it's, it's both encouraging and also taking away um, requirements at the same time, I think is his first point. And his second point is, in general, you know, we seem to have certain overarching principles, like, for example, speaking the truth. With speaking the truth about everything, about God's existence and how everything depends on him, etc., would that be enough to kind of 
comprehensively include everything, meaning all 613, or not. So as far as the first question, you're right. It's a, it's a, delicate, um, it's a delicate balance. On the one hand, we're saying we are obligated in the 613 commandments. On the other hand, we're saying hopefully we can get at least one of them right. So is that saying that uh, we don't have to do all of them? No, it's not saying that we don't have to do all of them. It's saying that it's hard to do anything perfectly well. We do have to do our best to do everything in all 613. But it's easier to kind of focus on doing one thing perfectly well and the other ones um, so to speak, as much as we can. And so it seems that that's the balance that we're trying to strike. Pick one mitzvah as your pet mitzvah. I think Rabbi Nechdeman has recently taken upon himself the mitzvah of tefillin, especially helping other Jews with tefillin, and involved in a special project with that. Um, and that's a great, great mitzvah, right? To help other people with tefillin, probably a little bit different than just standing on a street corner and asking uh, people if they put on tefillin today. Um, but the point is, is that, okay, I can hyper-focus and put tremendous amount of effort into one thing. I can't put a tremendous amount of effort into 613 things. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm not obligated to do what I understand to be the basic obligation of those other 612. Um, it is a teaching of the rabbis, like the Rambam says, and there's a whole book written about this uh, in the Sefer HaCharedim, where he talks about the different mitzvahs that correspond to the different parts of the human being and also does compare doing one mitzvah really well gives you a hold onto the tree of life right so like you're you're holding on um as if you're trying to grab the whole tree you might not grab any of it that's mm -hmm. kind of the parable that he gives which is an interesting parable as far as your second uh, question no it's definitely not enough to only speak the truth of Hashem because we know we're obligated in these other things. At the same time, if a person really is tremendously focused on always speaking the truth, the likelihood is that they're going to do a lot more things correctly than if they're not focused on that overarching principle. So it's very useful to know the main principles of Judaism, not so dissimilar from the fact that this week the Torah talks about Ten Commandments and the Rambam elucidates 13 principles of Emuna which we call affirmation, 13 principles of affirmation. And by focusing on those, it definitely spawns the ability to do other things, a lot of other things, much more correctly than if we don't. But it's definitely not enough. For example, it's not enough to say Hashem exists and then go out for, you know, a pork supper. You know, <clears throat> those things are, but it should make it easier to not go out for a pork supper because I know Hashem is real and I know the Torah is real and it says don't eat pork. You know, so it helps a lot. Yeah. Anyone else? Good for today? Okay, so we'll go to our Dora Torah. It's so nice to see everyone.